sorry for the brief delay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no problem at all. Yeah, good. Thank you. Yeah, very good. I've just been listening to your voice for the last hour. So this is <laughs> sort of a <laughs> continuation. Do you have to disappear at some point? No, I'm, you've, you've got me for as long as you need. Self-employed. Self-employed. Uh, not quite. I'm a tutor, but I just don't teach on a Monday afternoon. Oh, that's <laughs> so, perfect. Oh, that's yeah, even so better. It's more of a, I just thought I'd pick something. I've done all my, my stuff with my students this morning. I just thought I'd give myself an afternoon of something that I enjoy. <laughs> well, that's what this is. This is the football library, and your your visit is welcome because it completes a week of TFTers. I had Daniel Williamson on Monday, Stephen Scrag oh, yeah. on Wednesday. And as we listen to this, on March 12th, uh, it's time to talk Brazil. But before we talk Brazil, Stu Horsfield. When did you become Stu? Have you always been Stu? Pretty much, unless my mum was angry with yeah, me. It was, yeah, yeah. Everybody called me Stu until my mum was annoyed or had annoyed her in some way. And then it was Stuart. I only get Jonathan from female members of family when I've done something nefarious although I haven't the last year which has been horrific in many ways and we're talking just before we get the official announcement of what has been leaked in dribbles over the last 50 hours Um, so by the time this goes out on March the 12th schools should be back Um, deer will frolic in the forests and politics 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 which we're not here to discuss the football library does have politics we have a whole lounge named after Andy Holt where we can discuss politics. And I'm sure if uh, Socrates, the Brazilian captain, came along, politics would be the first thing that he'd speak about. Would, actually, oh. this, is, this is a good question. How would Socrates have solved the um, COVID-19 crisis in Brazil? Uh, I, I think he would, have, he would have called for common sense. Um, obviously, being a qualified doctor, his would have been a voice of reason that I think the masses would have listened to. Uh, I certainly think they would have paid more attention to whatever his his plan of action would have been with regards to the current um, president, shall we say, who seems to not have much of a plan um, going forward with what was happening. I think he would have done what was best for the people um, and I think they would have listened and, and followed. He is someone who's had a book written. It's Andrew Downey's book. And I do hope to get That's Andrew right. on because he's got a book out this year. But I imagine you used it as research. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. Real, really nice guy, Andrew, as well. Very, very helpful uh, with regards to my book. Um, I met him while I was down in London, actually, before the pandemic and we could travel freely. Yeah, he took time out and we met up for a couple of hours to chat. Socrates, Brazil, and about his new book, actually, coincidentally. It's about 1970, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. He's interviewed... He's interviewed... I think he's managed to get just about a player from every team that took part in the 1970 World Cup. We were chatting about Abraham Klein, who obviously, I'm sure we'll come to, sort of covers the whole arc from 70 to 82 as the referee in the Brazil-England game in 70, but also the Brazil-Italy game in 82. So we sort of chatted quite a bit about him. Um, but yeah, he's. I mean, he lived. He's lived in Brazil um, for a long time. He's fluent, um, and his book. His book looks great. But yeah, the Socrates biography also is. You know, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. Yeah, I wanted to talk to him early this year, but they pushed back. We don't know when the book will come out, which is why it was probably so glorious that your debut and possibly only book, from what I've heard, uh, came out in October. And I don't want to um, 
duplicate too much the Football Times podcast, these Football Times podcasts from around the launch. Because one, it's fantastic. Two, the tone is brilliant because you're all mates. And we will we'll talk about TFT in this first half and then go on to the book. Well, 1982 Brazil, The Glorious Failure. Every book should have the word failure in the title because instantly you go, well, why? How? What? Well, we will talk about the contents in the second half. But was there any... A doubt in your mind about the title? Was it always that title? Um, To be honest, originally, I'm I'm toyed with the idea of the day football died, mainly for a quote um, from Zico when he's, when he sort of, whenever he was interviewed, articles that I've read, whenever he talks about sort of Brazil's sort of fateful day in Saria and you know he always claimed it, it was the day football died football international football and certainly international tournament football never really recovered but it it didn't sit easy with me based on Hillsborough Bradford Heysel you know there's, there's been a lot of yeah El Nasser, a lot of Zlones, yeah, yeah. There's, there's been a lot of incidents I thought it'd be quite trite of me to come up with a title where actually you know, more serious things have happened and people literally have died around scenarios with football. So it was quickly dismissed. And then from there, it was one of those where I just had a really positive word and then a really negative word and just had them all on pieces of paper because it it needed to be that sort of juxtaposition of wonderfulness and, and tragedy that, that sort of needed to come. So in the end, it was that the glorious failure was were sort of the two words that, that won in the end. Yeah, it's a great title. I, I came up with the title for my book just on a whim, and I thought, yeah, the rhythm sounds good. Um, it's called A Modern Guide to Modern Football, originally called Saturday 3pm, but then Danny Gray quite rightly <laughs> nicked it. And uh, Danny Gray was an early visitor to the football library, and it's nice to have you here. You're the 104th uh, as I speak. Um, Thank you. So I've... I'm sorry that it's taken so long, but this is a week dedicated to these football times. The person I would love to have spoken to, because I know Omar very well, because he gave me some articles, he gave me the space to write some articles a long, long time ago. Um, But I never knew Jim Hart, and you dedicate your most recent piece, which went up a few days ago before we spoke, uh, about Italians. And it's dedicated to Jim Hart, who was a fan of Italian football, who passed away at the end of 2018. Uh, Can you give some background as to the man Jim was and uh, why we should respect his place in football criticism? I mean, I I think you said you'd spoken to Stephen Scraggs. Stephen knew Jim probably better than I did. I joined these football times in... Oh, it's that end of 2016, quite late on, um, purely by chance. And like you say, Omar, wonderful at giving people opportunities. And Jim was sort of one of those people who, people, people, it's funny, people talk about when you don't notice a really good referee, if that may, and the analogy that I'm trying to sort of work out is Jim is one of those people who never seemed to put himself at the forefront, but yet you always knew he was there and you could always go to him, you could always rely on him. Incredibly positive person, saw saw the best in everyone, was always somebody you could go to for advice with regards to an article or with regards to writing. He was always somebody who just... I mean, I mean, I love football. I absolutely love it, live, live it and breathe it. But then 
Jim would take, just took that to another level. Everything was so positive. He was always intent on discussions. You know, he would discuss any aspect of the game with you at any point. Jim was originally the, the podcast um, host at, for these football times, and we did a World Cup series. And he, you know, he asked if I would like to do one of the episodes about eight to two hours, eight to eight six. You know, would you like to do the episodes? Like, yeah, I've never done a podcast before, but he said you'll be fine. You know, as Jim, you'll be fine. Don't worry, it'll be great. It's this and it's that, and don't you worry about it and I'll take care of it and it's like okay that's fine and you sort of get swept up in his enthusiasm and then from there it was you sort of would would invite people regularly on you know once you'd been on once that was it as far as he was concerned you were in and you know why why wouldn't you want to come back and do another episode and he just made you feel it's not like a good manager does he just made you feel like you could do anything or contribute or that your contribution was always valued and always always worthwhile when we lost, it was it was so sudden, so so sudden. Um, we recorded an episode of a podcast, and then literally two days later, you know, Omar mm-hmm. sort of broken the news, and it was just it it was like you know really sort of shocking and, and jarring. And but, but what now? What what? You know, it was one of the what happens now because we're all so distant and spread, as you know, you know, spread around the globe. Some of the contributors, the writers, you know, Omar's in Australia, Jim's in America. You know, we were just all sort of all well, now what? You know, now who's the who's the father figure? Now who's gonna look after us all and take us under the wing? And you know, and, and he and he left and still has done. You know, left a massive, massive hole and a massive gap to fill. You know, and sometimes people are irreplaceable based on who they are and what they bring. And you know, and that was Jimmy. You can't replace him as a person. You can only sort of either aspire to be like him or or try and take on board what he offered to new people and I've always been quite conscious I mean you know I've been at these football times for near about four years now and when people contact me and, and ask me for advice on an article and, and it, it shocks me that people want my advice but then from there I'm always sort of reminded of of what Jim did and, and how he approached it and so you think yeah you know I've got time for this person this person's reached out and taken the time to ask my advice the least I can do is you know is get back to them and help them and 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 that's probably his, his greatest legacy is is that he sort of made you want to be a better person, I think, is, is probably the greatest compliment I can pay him. Well, man, I think that's brilliant. Uh, he comes across like a Humphrey Littleton kind of figure. Once Humph died, <laughs> I'm sorry I haven't a clue, was fine, but it was losing that je ne sais quoi, the X factor, the Jim Hart factor. Yeah. And um, these footballtimes.co is testament to what he does in this podcast uh, there have been over 200 of them, so I've got to catch you up. It, it feels to me like there are some key panellists who have stepped up. There's you, there's Gary Thacker, who is a Chelsea fan, who has also written a book of fiction. Have you read The Games People yeah. Play? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I mean, you're right. You know, to be fair, the, the sort of Stephen, Gary and I and Aidan are sort of the, the four. I mean, when we originally lost Jim, and like I say, we were in the middle of a, we were in, right in the middle of a podcast series, and it, it is one of those where nobody... You don't want to replace the irreplaceable. Does that nobody wants to have to do that? And you know, the sort of Omar asks, you know, well, does anybody want to do it? And and it's like, oh, somebody. And you know, it's one of those prolonged silences. And it's, I sort of put my hand. I was like, I'll have a go. But you know, I've not hosted before. But by that point, I've done quite a few podcasts. I was like, you know, I'll, I don't mind doing it. I'll learn the sort of technical elements of recording and, and and that sort of thing. I said, but you know, don't expect it to be. You know, sort of what Jim did, blah blah blah. 
you know, no man was like, no, that's great. And then once someone to put the hand up, everybody else like, great, we'll support mm-hmm. you and it'll be this and it'll be that. And like you say, and, and obviously I've, I've been really lucky. I made some great friends along the way, but it's opened up opportunities to speak to people that I would never have dreamt we could have spoken to. Such as? Neville Southall, Gary Mabbert, Jimmy Carragher, Vincent Company, Abraham Klein. Just, just people who you sort of, these almost figures that you see on the television that you think, oh, it'd be great if you could just speak to them. For, and then purely by chance and contacts of contacts of contacts or someone getting on, you know, would you like to speak to so-and-so? And it's like, yeah. Why, yeah. Why? We spoke to um, Asif Kapadi when he just finished his Maradona wow. um, documentary. And, you know, someone had sent an email to Elmar saying, oh, you know, Asif's doing like a press day. You know, would you like to interview him? And so we've not been doing the podcast. I, I, myself, Stephen, and Gary sort of originally took over the sort of the logistics of the podcast. And Elmar sort of said, "You know, how would you fancy this? You'll need to travel down to London." And Stephen and I were like, "Yeah." And they said, "You know, you'll there's like a private screening of the film, and then a week later, if you go and you know, you can interview." So it was like a couple of trips down to London, but it was like, you know, went into this really nice building just off King's Cross and with my laptop and a little microphone and and just sort of sat with this Oscar-winning director asking him about his experiences with Maradona. And it's just, you know, and it, it's just, it's just kind of snowballed from there. And we were given license to come up with our own series. You know, we started doing a little bit, you know, with the books, you know, authors asking if they could come on. And it, it's just kind of snowballed, but it's, it's the most wonderful, enjoyable experience. And like, especially Stephen and Gary and, and Aidan, the sort of, the four of us have become really, I say really close. I've met Stephen once in person. I've never met Gary in person, never met Aidan in person. And yet it comes yet through, pro- comes through on the yeah, audio. Yeah, exactly. We probably speak to each other two, three times a week minimum. Um, and you end up, and especially with obviously with lockdown and what have you, we've almost, you know, they've sort of become, I'd like to think, sort of friends for life, but having never met them just through a, just through a love of football. I was thinking this just, just yesterday, and I'm not going to get maudlin, but how, how well do you have to know a person to be positive that they will give a eulogy when the time comes or will be at your bedside? Not to take the tone there, but just really close friends are the ones you'll rely on beyond the very end. Yeah, I, th- I think it's funny, actually, because you know, people say that you probably only have a handful of friends at the most. You just have a lot of acquaintances. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's true. Certainly Stephen and Gary and I and Aidan, it, it's, I guess the pandemic has, you know, because obviously there's all the chat that we do before we start the podcast, how are you getting on, how's life, you know, and all these sort of things that you, that you catch up with and, and chat about. And you, you kind of get to know people really, really well. And like I said, they've become really, well, to me, they have to be listening to this and thinking, well, I don't think so. But to me, they've become <laughs> really, really good, close friends that hopefully once all this is over and, you know, we can meet up properly. And Gary lives in Spain now, but, you know, we're always talking about going across to taking a couple of La Liga games and, a, you know, and a sort of long weekend in the sun. But um, mm. there's certainly somebody that you could rely on if you, if you needed them. And I think that's usually the testament of a good friend is if you ring them in an emergency, would they come through for you? And mm. I think I think all three of them would. 
I think you were saying that, and all I was thinking is, but George, will there be rabbits? Yes, Lenny, there'll be rabbits. And fields of alfalfa? It's, it's that, that's where we are now, and we'll live off the fat of the football land. Um, Gary Thacker has written several books. Uh, he's a Chelsea fan who's written about England at World Cups, and he's got a book out in June about Dutch football. So I will talk to him about beautiful bridesmaids, unless these Football Times podcast is and will, because it follows in the tradition of turning the tables. I have listened now to Stephen being interrogated about his books, and he's got a third later in the year, or or early next year. The table's turned on you. Uh, I'm yet to listen to the table's turned on Gary. Um, But I love the fact that you wrote this book out of kind of shame. You you wrote it to save face. Did you think 20 years ago you'd have a book in Zico's hands? <laughs> oh God, no! Um, I, I didn't think I'd have a book in my own hands. If I'm truly honest, it's I'm quite I'm quite late, not late to reading. I didn't read a lot as a kid, mainly because I was always out playing. Um, and it's as I've got older that that I've got a sort of a, an appreciation of books. And now, you know, they they fill the house. Football books, any, any books, but I'm, you know, predominantly football books. But writing a book was as I've got older, it's, and as I'm sort of got involved with these football times and it's something that I thought oh, it would be such an achievement you know if you could just write a book and, and have something left well it sounds quite grand but to have something left behind when you've gone there's you a see, little bit of I've started something here yeah it is definitely something tangible yeah, yeah. and and it's and, and I thought you know I thought, yeah, it would be great and then as I said we sort of set up we didn't intend to set up the podcast to, to have authors on. We got, we were lucky again. We got Michael Calvin came on, and so and Andrew Downey came on. We saw quite quickly one after the other, and we were like, "Oh, this is really good." You know, I wonder if other people would like to come on and talk about their books. Don't get your hopes up. Calvin will talk to anyone. He talked to me, <laughs> <laughs> and he's got a book out next month. Will you be reading his book, his new one? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I love his stuff. In fact, it's funny enough. I've just ordered. I'm, there was one that I was missing from the collection that I didn't realise was even out there. Um, I ordered it yesterday. Funnily enough, I'm hoping it's going to arrive at some point today. We st- we set off on this, and it sort of this series expanded. And then Stevens, Gary had already written the book about England um, that you mentioned earlier. Um, Stephen had sort of announced his, his um, Frozen in Time book on the Cup Winners' Cup. That came out. So all of a sudden, we were doing this podcast that I was hosting about authors with two authors who were co-hosts authors who were coming on to talk about their book and the person who was hosting it had never done it and i was just like this is every episode i, I felt worse and worse as it went along I like, this is this is terrible i feel such a fraud and i sort of one it was just purely one one episode that we'd recorded and i was like oh you know will you just stay on Stephen? i just want to have a chat with you about something and i sort of said sort of almost like a confession i was like look Stephen, i you know i think i need to I think I need to write a book, and, I, and I've thought of an idea. What do you think? And so, half an hour later, as, as Stephen does, he was like, "Yep, yeah, it can have this and that." And he was while we were chatting, he was emailing me um, pictures that could go in the middle. And you know, and you're like, well, yeah. "Now slow down, slow down." I was just asking if you thought the <laughs> the concept was good. I don't need the centre pictures already, and and it sort of went from there. And this um, was because. You, nobody had written about 82. Gary Jenkins wrote a really good book, and Carlos Alberto comes out really well, about the 1970 side. I think it's called In Search of the Beautiful Game. Um, yeah. But no one had written about the 82 side. Um, were you pleased that 442 ran a piece, I think about 18 months ago, about that 82 Brazil side? They're one of those sides 
because because in the conversation with Stephen, he, he gave me a really good piece of advice. He went, look, he said, if you're going to write a book, he said, write about something you will enjoy and don't write it for anybody else but yourself yeah. because you can't please anyone but yourself. If you like it, that's great. And it's an awful long slog if you don't enjoy the subject. So I was like, well, look, in that case then, the first thing I would write about is this side. I said, I'm pretty sure there isn't a book out there. I can't find one because I would have bought it by now if I had been. Um, I said, that's what I'm going to do. But And then the, the worst bit, to be honest, is when you know when you're going to write one and you start to do your research, I was panic-stricken for probably the best part of six to eight months that all of a sudden someone would just produce this book from nowhere about the side. <laughs> it would be like, oh, okay. So you almost, uh, there was this almost almost fear that, yeah. that someone had, had already had the idea and was well ahead of where I was um, and would produce this wonderful book before I had chance to. But thankfully, um, and luckily and strangely, like you say, no one had no one had bothered to to write a book about them, which I couldn't understand because in social on social media they're all you know they are discussed a lot. You know, and you mentioned four four two. Um, there's a couple of wonderful pieces in the Guardian that have been written about either the Italy game or you know players from that from that side. Um, and obviously Andrew's book about Socrates brought them back into the public conscience again. So I knew I thought there was an interest in that side. I just couldn't understand why there wasn't a book about them. There are books that deal with Brazil as a football entity. I can name two of them, but I'll let you see if you can name them. There's there's one on that's called Football Nation, which I've read. It's David um, Goldblatt, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's one there's one called the Seven. Uh, now, I it was Fernando Duarte who read it, and it was the Seven. It's about seven defeats in the history of Brazilian football. Um, seven devastating defeats, oh, which wow. was a, which is a really really good book. I read that, and then there's Alex. Belos's book and the name escapes me. It's called Football. Um, Football, The the Portuguese spelling of football. And it's about Brazil as a nation. And Alex is more into puzzles nowadays and mathematics. But that book is one of the best for a reason. Because it isn't... It's about football, but it's about Brazil as a nation and what they stand for. And it came out about 20 years ago. It was that and Brilliant Orange work well in tandem. Uh, mostly because Brazil and Holland do have something in common. Um, did you gain influence from the style as well as the content of these books? I was very conscious that this was almost going to be a love letter to a to a football team. And to write a love letter to a football team as a 40-something-year-old man, it's quite difficult. Well, Nick Hornby did it, it in his early 30s. Yeah, that's right. And to get across what the side mean to me even now it, it it had to be written in my opinion it had to be written through the eyes of the 10 year old me because if I was writing it now or as the person now it wouldn't it wouldn't have sat right it wouldn't have in my opinion it wouldn't have come across in quite the same way so it it needed it needed to be written almost by the 10 year old me or how what it was like as a 10 year old not retrospectively what that side were. I didn't want it to be a, a technical, tactical analysis because that's that's not what it was. That's everything that, that almost doesn't interest me in football. What interests me are the aesthetics and the visuals. Um, and as a 10-year-old, like I say, I, I'd never seen anything like it. But but in order to get the sort of, the, almost the awe across, 
it had to be written from a from a ten year old's perspective rather than anything else. I mean, there's there's other stuff that's in it that sort of looks at from seventy to eighty two, you know, stuff that I wasn't aware of that needed researching. And you know, the ten year old me had absolutely zero idea about. In fact, the odd something year old me had a little idea about some of it. So, you know, there are parts of it that that is very much a contemporary look at what happened in the situation. But once you get to the World Cup and that particular side, it then becomes about what it was like as a as a ten year old in that summer. Um, seeing seeing that team play, and that was always how I intended it to come across as. Whether people liked it or not, that that was up for them to decide. But it was, I figured there must be enough people of my generation who yeah. either thought the same as I did or remembered them the same as I did. I think. So you're writing in the vivid present, which is one of my favourite narrative tropes to do it all present tense and get the audience right there in your living room was it in Cottingham no it was in I was living in Scarborough at that time um okay. I was we still hadn't we still hadn't moved across it was yeah it was a uh, it was in a, a semi-detached house in Scarborough with a single lounge tiny kitchen three bedrooms and and that was it um one television in the whole house and it all just played out in yeah. that in that sort of living room. Oh, that sounds so Alan Bennett. And I was watching the football. <laughs> it were New Zealand playing Brazil. No, my mum um, was born in Cottingham. She grew up on Beverly oh, really? Road. Uh, and then... Oh, Cottingham High School was where, where I went uh, year, year 10 we moved across from Scarborough. Oh. So I went to Cottingham High School at, yeah, in year 10 and made, just after the 86 World Cup. Eight, the sort of the summer of 86 we moved across. We'll get to Maradona very shortly. No, mum is <laughs> mum is a hundred percent northern, so I'm half northern. My dad now lives in Long Island, but um, wow, I've I've born in Watford General Hospital. I can see the hospital from the window that I'm now looking out of. Um, so I've it's like Bruce Springsteen said. Um, I write all these songs about wanting to get out of Jersey, and I live ten minutes from where I grew up. That's the kind <laughs> of life that that I've led. But yeah, Cossingham High School, and then a sp- Sport and PE degree as a mature student. Yeah, I, I decided I should probably grow up at some point and get an education. I'd worked in bars in London, Tenerife. I'd had a great time, travelled, seen lots of things. Um, sport was the only thing I knew. It was the only thing I was any good at at school. Without, I don't sound all sort of, you know, a traditional story of, of somebody who just spent all the time in the PE department, but that was pretty much how it was. Failed my A-levels, played football whenever I could, um, and then at 27, it was like, hmm, probably should, probably should see if I can, I can do something, I'll make a bit of something, and, and then from there, it was just lots of fortunate opportunities, I guess, that have sort of Led me to led me to where I am today. Isn't it that, was, I mean, it was hard work. Well, but, sure, but isn't that what life is? It's just one series of fortunate opportunities after another. I started a podcast with a guy that I stumbled next to at an event put on by the Blizzard. It just turned out that he was a Watford fan and had a spare seat next to him. That's the and that has led me to these football library discussions about books such as yours, 1982 Brazil, the glorious failure. Congratulations on getting... Is it an MSc in sports history and culture? Uh, an MA. An MA. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, of course, that suits you because it is an art as well as a branch yeah. of science. Um, yeah. 
Was Brazil your area of research for your thesis? Uh, it was a lot of it was done in uh, with FIFA. A lot of it was done. Um, I did a lot because there was a lot of there was a political module. Uh, my actual dissertation was done on the history of football academies in England. That's um, amazing. Sorry, I want to write this book about the FA Youth Cup. Will I? Okay. If I don't, would you? Because this seems perfect. <laughs> Lillishall and the academy in the 90s and all the branches of football, Busby and Ron Greenwood at West Ham. So what did you conclude? It was like a social history of the, of the football academy or the development of youth footballers. I was, again, I was lucky. I, I knew people through work. I got to speak to a guy called... Jed Slater, who I worked with for a little while, wonderful, wonderful guy, who was one of two apprentices under Graham Taylor at Lincoln City. Oh, wow. Um, interviewed him about his experiences. So it was done as um, very much as a like a historical piece on the development. And I interviewed people at various days. I spoke to a guy called Rod Arnold, who was... Uh, still is the record appearance holder for Mansfield Town, but originally started at Wolves when they first played in Europe at Juventus. Um, He was on the bench as a teenager. I spoke with a guy called John McDermott, record appearance maker at Grimsby Town, and how he nearly quit after his first year as an apprentice because it was so bad and it was so horrific for him. Um, And he ended up going back purely by chance. And then from there, went on to be their record appearance maker. Um, spoke to Gary Childs, who was a, who originally started at West Brom for his apprenticeship under Ron Atkinson when Laurie Cunningham, Cyril Regis, Brendan Batson were all there. So he was there at that point in time as an apprentice. So, And then I spoke to Nick Barnby, who obviously went through Lillishall. So I, I tried to speak to people that took me through the timeline of the development of academies, um, you know, and how it's, I won't say how it's changed, how the game doesn't change, but the opportunities that are afforded um, young players now, you know, whether that's for better or for worse, it, it wasn't designed to sort of formulate an opinion or a decision. It was more, uh, here you go, yeah. here's a discussion. And this is what is, people expect and make your own minds up. There is a book that makes up its mind and it's No Hunger in Paradise by Mike Calvin, which is just, well... It's not unbelievable. It's sad. It's a really sad book. What is it? Is it something like 31 out of 1,000 or 10,000 is a professional Uh, in a top-level club after their 21st birthday? It's it's something minuscule. It is. It's it's so competitive. And it's funny, actually, because I I actually teach on a a football coaching degree at the moment at at the Grimsby Institute. Uh, My friend and I wrote... Um, a foundation degree in football coaching and he's really really good as an a-licensed coach and he does all the, the sort of coaching side but obviously my background is sort of the culture and, and historical aspects of it and one of them at the moment they're doing the research project and one of my students is actually doing looking at a pilot program for what football clubs offer 18 year olds once they're released by clubs and what's on offer to support parents oh, to yes. support their children once they've been released either at 16 or 18 um, and she's actually a girl called Beth she's just going now she's just going through sort of a very similar history to the research that I did in terms of what clubs have done in the past to look after this like you say you know the sheer volume of 
of kids who have given up everything and families and parents have given up everything to sort of pursue the dream that is very, very difficult to achieve. And then from there, what's actually in place for them and, you know, and can more be done once they, once they're released by professional clubs and they're sort of in the real world with not limited emotional intelligence, but very much, you know, it's, it requires a different type of yeah. intelligence and experience once you leave once you leave a professional football club that you've been at probably since 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. Um, that makes me think of Ikechianya, who was one of many to rebuild his career in Spain, uh, one of the Glen Hoddle, or the Glen Hoddle oh. Academy. I, I love football. I was, I was all right as a footballer. I was never, was never in danger of, of troubling first division sides or anything like that. But it was, you know, it, it's always fascinated me how, you know, the, the, the massive commitments that, that families make now um, in terms of, you know, supporting the children. You know, academies are great and they bring structure and they bring technical development. You know, there's so much more on offer, but then the demands seem to be so much more actually on the players, the young players themselves and on the families, you know, to sort of match the commitments that, you know, professional clubs now require from their academy players that, to me, didn't seem to exist maybe 20, 30 years ago. In fact, Watford are playing right now. They're playing in St Albans, the under-23 side. They've got some very good players. Uh, the under-23 side doesn't really exist as such. We've got a Watford B team, and a lot of those B teamers step up when necessary. But some of them are on loan to satellite clubs. There's one at Ultra, um, Accrington. Um, but yes, the, if you do drop out of the game as, well, two Watford players in recent years, Eddie Oshodi and Marvin Sordell have both subsequently dropped out but the skills that they gained at the Harefield Academy which Mark Warburton set up and has taken 70 I think 75 players from um, academy level to the first Watford team before selling them on there is a pathway uh, but it's very easy to fall out of love with football itself because of the it's like you know Gareth Southgate said love football hate the industry I just wanted to touch on a couple of pieces that you've written for these football times you have also written for 90 Min are you familiar with Chris Dealey and his work yeah yeah um, I think Chris was was one of the people in charge when when I was there um, and I spoke to him about his book actually he came on as a as yeah. a guest on the podcast as well um, really nice guy he said that book nearly drove him insane is that right yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, you know, you know, when you when you're writing a book, it 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 just consumes everything you do. You wake up, you go to sleep thinking about it. You wake up thinking about it. You're thinking about it all during the day. It's it it really is this massive. Just it just consumes everything. Then all of a sudden, you let it go. As it goes to the publisher, or whatever, and your life just seems to have this. Well. What do I think, what do I think about now? Sort of thing. It's it's a very it's a, until you've done it, and this is part of, again part of the reason why I felt such a fraud. It, you know, you can now relate to you know when people make comments like this, you can you can kind of relate to it. Whereas mm-hmm. if you've not done it, you just go, oh, okay, yeah, uh huh, and and you don't really you can't really add to the the discussion and the conversation. You just have to take people's word for it. But once you've gone through it. Um, everything becomes a lot easier to relate to, certainly the emotional side of it anyway. Yeah, Chris has since moved on from 90 Min, but uh, I know about the website through him. Uh, you've written for that, but I particularly like your piece about FA Cup final day and the FA Cup 
as a whole, because one of the chapters of my book that I'm not here to promote, I've already said it's called A Modern Guide to Football. I don't want to do it again. But the, the, the last chapter is, is the FA Cup the last bit of magic left in football? The answer is no. Apparently, African Nations Cup has some magic. But I just I love how you call the FA Cup final day a second birthday. It, I, I, I clearly, it's funny because you're not really aware of, of how you write or what you do. You just, or certainly myself, you just kind of write what's interesting to you. And a lot of my, a lot of my best football memory, I, I like football, I like contemporary football, but I don't, I don't have the same relationship that I had with it as a kid um, growing up. I think my relationship with it as a child was far more enjoyable um whether that was because there was a lack of football on the television and there isn't now, whether it's just because everything is brilliant when you're a kid. You, you, you struggle to see the negative in anything when you're a kid. But, yeah, FA Cup final day was, it was a guaranteed live match. And if you were really lucky, it went to a replay and you got a second one. But, yeah, it was it was like a second birthday. You would, you know, the full day was given, my full day was given over to, to the FA Cup final. The morning, it would just be really exciting. I would have, my mum would have bought me whatever the sort of the guide that came out from the BBC or the ITV that was available to news agents. I would have that and I'd be reading that. And then it would be the build up that would sort of start, you know, the grandstand or world of sport, whichever channel you happen to sort of switch across to. And your whole day was geared over to, to that game. And then once it had all finished and you were done, you'd then just go out and sort of replicate it as best you could in the backfield with your mates. Yeah. And it's, and it's that. That was the, the magic part of it. It was all just, it just seemed so, like the whole country was, was looking forward to it. Whereas now it's, sadly to me, it's very much an afterthought and a very low down the list of priorities for, for clubs and fans. When and and no, that's not true, actually. No, not fans I, of love. Ask Wigan, but, ask Millwall. Yeah, yeah, but certainly fans of, you know, the, you know your Manchester City's, yeah. Chelsea's, many, you know, it's very much probably third on the list of of importance, yeah. whereas back then it seemed to be everybody wanted to play in the cup final, everybody wanted to win the FA Cup. When Andy Gray kicked the ball out of Steve Sherwood's hand in the 1984 final, did you, like Elton John, start crying again? Elton famously <laughs> cried during Abide With Me. It, was, it wasn't a goal. What did the commentators say at the time? It, it, yeah, because it's Steve Sherwood, isn't it? He actually heads it out of his hand because he's tiny, isn't he, Andy Gray? He's, he's absolutely tiny and Steve Sherwood comes to claim it and he's a big man and he sort of has one hand on it and, and Andy Gray, I guess, the hand and the head meet at the same time. And there's that wonderful image of him, of, of Sherwood just sort of sat with his sort of hands on his, or elbows across his knees, just sort of throwing his hands up in the air as if, I can't believe you've given that. And I suppose it's very similar to the Maradona handball goal where you've got this this small this small diminutive character sort of leaping beyond what is what he should be able to do you know you know the goalkeeper's favorite on both counts to come and claim and they don't and and the strikers do what strikers do and make the most of it and the goal's given and and there you go it's it, again, it's part of the magic of the FA Cup. It's you know you, I could probably recount from about seventy seven, seventy eight up to sort of nineteen ninety. Most incidents, goals, gestures, commentary lines that you sort of associate with with the FA Cup final. It was just that evocative and that that memorable. 
um, and the goals and the moments were that iconic that you can just recall them instantly and they sort of put you in a place and time you know straight away it's 1984 you know the Everton Watford final and you know everything you associate with 1984 you know it was my sort of second year at secondary school everything my life just revolved around those those moments um, I think it is Nicole B. I just want to mention it. I think you know football fans don't have a, a a traditional calendar it's you know there are calendars of football seasons they mm-hmm. sort of start in September and finish in May and that's how football fans run their calendars and their lives absolutely let the record state that Andy Gray has been compared to Diego Maradona in the football <laughs> library, which is which is an apt comparison. Um, Maradona is your favourite player. You've written a wonderful piece about how you are a you hover in fandom purgatory. You couldn't commit to Arsenal for some reason in the eighties. Can't think why. Uh, and you instead you support playmakers. 